0: As we come to Your Word, we thank You for Your Word. We remember that it is inspired, that it is breathed out through Your Spirit, that it is infallible, that it is inerrant, that it is sufficient. And we pray, O Lord, that Your Word would do Your work in us. We also pray for our children, those who are inside the womb and those who are outside the womb. We pray for Them to have ears to hear and eyes to see. We pray that the soil that these seeds are spread into would bear a rich harvest of faith in your time. We do pray for you to save our children, that you would have mercy on them. And we pray the same for us, O Lord, as we study your word. Give us understanding, give us conviction. Instruct us in the way we should go in order that Christ would be exalted in our lives and we would be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 41 to 44 today. Uh, as, Jordan, as Pastor Jordan said in the opening prayer, uh, purely by, uh, by providence, we happen to land on a passage uh, in, uh, on, the, on the resurrection in the Gospel of John. Praise the Lord, because today is Resurrection Sunday. We, we celebrate the, the resurrection every Sunday. That's why we meet, one of the reasons we meet on Sunday is because the Lord ro- rose again from the grave on this day. And as you study the New Testament, what you see is that the New Testament church is meeting on Sundays. They're meeting on the first day of the week rather than the last day of the week. And that's what sets the pattern for why we meet today on Sundays rather than on Saturdays. But today is Resurrection Sunday, and while we do celebrate the resurrection every week, there is something special about Resurrection Sunday. It's the day that we remember the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, who was crucified, died, and was buried on Friday, but on the third day, he rose again. And when you read the New Testament accounts of what happened between the death of Christ and the discovery by the disciples of Christ's resurrection, you know that the resurrection of Jesus changes absolutely everything. What's clear when you read these accounts is that the disciples were not expecting Jesus to be resurrected. It was probably the furthest thing from their minds. We read of one encounter that Jesus had with two of His disciples who were on the road to Emmaus, uh, which is about seven miles away from Jerusalem. And these two disciples, as they're walking, they are very distraught. They are depressed. They are upset. They are distressed. And so reading, uh, reading this passage, starting in Luke uh, 27, verse 13, this is what we read. we read. We read, and behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to Him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered Him to the sentence of death and crucified Him. But we were hoping that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Isn't that interesting? The idea of Christ resurrecting seems to be the furthest thing from their minds. They thought that it was impossible that Jesus could rise on the third day. They're thinking it's the third day. He is dead and buried, and there's no chance of us ever seeing the redemption of Israel. They certainly were not expecting Him to come up and start walking beside them, because they weren't expecting Him to be resurrected. But what makes this particularly interesting is the fact that this theme of resurrection has been present throughout all four Gospels. It's been alluded to in in one way or another, in various ways, in several places prior to that point in time in Jesus' ministry. Uh, One of those times was when Jesus brought a young girl uh, back to life in Luke chapter 8, and in the previous chapter, another time, it was a young man that Jesus brought back to life from death. But Jesus also prophesied of his own resurrection. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, is what he said back in chapter 2 of John's Gospel. And of course, that was very early on in Jesus' ministry. And I think it's safe to say that the disciples had no idea what Jesus was talking about when he said that. It would only be later on that they would look back and understand what those words were even meaning. But they they certainly were not understanding them because they were not expecting Jesus to be resurrected. And so when He died, the disciples were sad. They were downtrodden. They were in despair. Many of them, we learn, went back to their old jobs uh, of fishing. Uh, John was one of them. Peter, they went back to fishing. But the resurrection of Jesus... Changes everything. As we've been studying chapter 11 of John's gospel, we've seen that Jesus' friend Lazarus died and that Jesus delayed going to see Lazarus so that the faith of his disciples would be strengthened. He goes to Bethany finally, uh, after Lazarus has died, he goes to comfort uh, the sisters of Lazarus, Mary and Martha. And he asked to be shown the tomb where Lazarus was buried. And as he comes to the tomb, Martha steps in and and warns Jesus to stay away from uh, the, the tomb, to keep the grave closed, because Lazarus had been dead for four days. And as the King James translates it, she's worried that he stinketh. It would have smelled terrible. It would have smelled of of death and decay. And so she's warning Jesus to keep the tomb closed. But Jesus wanted to strengthen Martha's faith. And so he said to her, as we saw uh, in our previous lesson, he said, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Now that doesn't mean if you believe, I'm going to do this. What it means is if you believe, you'll understand what this all means. What that means is if you believe, you'll see the glory of God demonstrated in what I'm about to do. But if you don't believe, you won't see it. This gives us this lens through which we can make sense of things like the way that nobody believed in Jesus when he fed the 5,000 families, which comes out to roughly 20,000 people who were fed on two fish and five small barley loaves. They didn't see the glory of God in the miracle because they didn't believe to begin with. And so now, if Martha wants to see the glory of God in the raising of her brother from the dead, she too will need to hold on to her faith just a little bit longer. Remember, faith is the lens through which we see the glory of God. So the point of the passage that we'll, be, that we'll be covering today is that the raising of Lazarus from the dead serves two purposes. Number one, it, it, uh, it gives comfort to Mary and Martha. It strengthens their faith just as Jesus had intended. But more importantly, it points to the resurrection of Christ because it points to His power over death. And that points us to the resurrection of the saints one day. And resurrection changes Everything. So Martha had stopped in to, stepped in to stop Jesus from opening the tomb after Jesus had instructed back in verse 39 that the stone be rolled away. And having encouraged Martha to have faith, Jesus now continues. Let's start in verse 41. We read, So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised His eyes and said, Father, I thank You, that you have heard me, I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around when uh, around I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. It's an interesting prayer. Jesus doesn't ask the Father to do anything here. All he does is he thanks the Father for hearing him. Jesus has already prayed for the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus knew what had happened. He knew that Lazarus was going to die. And He knew that He was going to go to Bethany and that He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Maybe praying for Lazarus is one of the things that Jesus was doing when He delayed going to Bethany to see Mary and Martha and to raise Lazarus from the grave. Maybe that's one of the things Jesus did for two days. But he prays in a manner that demonstrates his confidence in God's faithfulness and in God's attentiveness. He's confident in God's power. He knows that he has power over death. And as such, while the sisters of Lazarus are helpless, that their brother is dead, and while those who are grieving the death of Lazarus with the sisters are helpless, Jesus is not. Jesus is not helpless. He is all-powerful, which means there's nothing that's logically impossible for him to do. He's he's all-knowing, which means that he is aware of the situations and the challenges that we face. And he's all-wise, which means not only is he able to do whatever he wants, and not only does he know what challenges we face, but he knows what is best. He knows how to do something to glorify Himself and to increase the faith of His people. He's omniscient, all-knowing, He's all-powerful, and He is all-wise. Paul said to the Philippian church, my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Did you get that? My God will supply all your needs your needs. Can I just offer you one brief, simple suggestion, friends? Pray in light of the truth of that verse when you pray pray in truth in light of the truth that that verse is communicating pray boldly pray confidently know that God hears know that God knows know that he's able to work out your situation for the best and that in fact he's promised us in his word that he's already doing that whatever situation you might face whatever challenge you might face if anything should increase our confidence in God, it is the demonstration of His power over death. And that's what is going to be put on display here. And of course, it's a foreshadowing of Christ's own resurrection. His power over death changes everything. His resurrection changes everything everything because it demonstrates that nothing can stand in the way of his purposes being fulfilled it demonstrates that the cross was not a setback and that it was not plan b it was plan a all along and it was a victory it was sufficient and so what can separate us from the love of god in christ jesus if it was a victory if it was plan a If it went exactly according to plan, what can separate us from His love? Nothing. Nothing. That's the answer that Paul concludes Romans chapter 8 with. Not even death. Nothing can separate us from His love. Jesus wants this prayer to be heard. Now, you might ask why that is. It might seem a little bit strange because elsewhere He encourages people not to pray publicly. So, so why is Jesus praying out loud? Why is He praying so publicly? Back in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, He said, "...when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, here's the key, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full." So the difference there is in that one little clause... The difference is that Jesus isn't praying out loud in order to play a role. or He's not doing it hypocritically. It's not a facade. He's doing it, he says, so that they, the people who are around, so that they may believe that you, the Father, sent me. See, hypocrites, when they pray, they're long, drawn-out prayers. They're, they're flowery and they're loud and they want to be heard. They want to draw attention to themselves. But Jesus prays in order to make sure that the glory goes to the Father. And when that's our desire, we too can pray with confidence. Our confidence isn't in ourselves when we pray. That's, that's the wrong object of faith. We aren't the object of our own faith. We don't even have faith in our faith. We have faith in our God. We don't put our confidence in what we pray. We don't put our confidence in when we pray. We don't put our confidence in where we pray, or how long we pray, or how short we pray. Our confidence is in the God to whom we pray. And so we can pray confidently and boldly. Let's continue. Verses 43 and 44. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. So we're told... John tells us that he speaks with a very loud voice here. Now, he didn't need to speak with a loud voice in order for Lazarus to hear him. The reason he used a loud voice was not because uh, Lazarus uh, wouldn't have heard him otherwise. No, the reason he speaks in a loud voice is to show that he has sovereign authority. His is the voice, the same voice that spoke the universe and all of creation into existence. And His is the voice that calls to His sheep, to all whom the Father has given Him. And His sheep hear His voice, and they follow Him. And here Jesus is calling out to one of His sheep, while simultaneously imparting life to that sheep, the ability to respond. The resurrection of Lazarus reminds us that Jesus has power over death. Over life and death. And it reminds us that apart from God's grace, you and I are as spiritually unable to help ourselves as Lazarus was physically unable to help himself apart from God's grace, God's help, God's work. Lazarus' physical death is a picture of our spiritual death by nature. And Christ calling to him is a picture of Christ's sovereign, effectual call. The call that never fails. That his sheep always respond to. His sheep hear his voice and they follow him. A.W. Pink notes this of the resurrection of Lazarus. He says, quote, Here was public proof that the Lord Jesus had absolute power over the material world and over the realm of the spirits. At his bidding, a soul that had left its earthly tenement was called back from the unseen to dwell once more in the body. Quote. And of course, this is something that only God can do. Nobody has ever brought somebody back from the dead after three days, four days, maybe a few minutes. People have been resuscitated, but nobody's ever been resurrected by human power. Nobody. Not once. Despite the medical technology that we have, we can't go dig somebody out of the grave and bring them back to life. We have no idea how that works. We can't do it. It is impossible for us. But not for God. This is something only God can do. And thus, by doing this seventh miracle, this is the seventh miracle recorded in John's Gospel, Jesus demonstrates not only that He is God in human flesh, but he demonstrates that he is a Savior we can trust. And not only a Savior that we can trust, but he's a Savior that we must trust. If the resurrection of Lazarus proves that we can trust Jesus as our divine Savior, and it does, how much more does the event of the resurrection of Lazarus, which it foreshadows, which is the resurrection of Christ, how much more does the resurrection of Christ Prove that we can trust him. Indeed, that we must trust him. The resurrection changes everything. The significance of Christ's resurrection can't be overstated. Paul says that Jesus, in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says that Jesus was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. In his first sermon, In the second chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 24, the Apostle uh, Peter preaches this of Jesus being resurrected in his first sermon. He says, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Why was it impossible for Jesus to be held in death's power? Because Jesus has power and authority over death and over all things. Paul makes a similar point in Romans chapter 6 verse 9 where he writes that Christ having been raised from the dead is never to die again death no longer is master over him. Why does that matter? Why does any of that matter? Because that means he lives even today. He lives and reigns forever. See see unlike Jesus Lazarus was going to have to go down that road again someday. Lazarus was going to die again one day. And and I, I have to wonder what he must have thought as he got close to death again later in life. I mean, what an odd experience that must have been. But I have to believe that he wouldn't have approached it the same way as he did the first time. I have to believe that he wouldn't have been afraid of death because he knew, if anybody knows, he knew that Jesus, his Savior, held sovereign power and authority over life and death. But the resurrection isn't only significant to Christians, friends. The resurrection is significant to absolutely everybody, believer and non-believer alike. Paul said this to the, to the intellectuals, to, to the brainiacs and the philosophers who were on Mars Hill in Athens in Acts chapter 17. They're gathered in Greece. For, that's the philosophy capital of the world at the time. He says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Those who have never repented and believed in Jesus should shudder, should tremble to consider the demonstration of Christ's power and authority over life and death. They should shudder to consider the resurrection of Lazarus Because it points to the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, Paul says, is proof that Jesus, the one who was raised from the grave, that Jesus will one day judge all men, that he will judge the world in righteousness. The person who has never believed in Jesus probably has some idea of what they expect, what they think is going to happen the moment they die everybody's got some idea, even an atheist has some idea of what they think is going to happen. An atheist would say, nothing's going to happen. I'm just going to be in darkness and lights out and it's over. That's an idea of what's going to happen. If you ask a Hindu or these days, the average American, they might say you're reincarnated after death. Or or some of them might say, I I think everybody just goes to, to heaven where they're reunited with their friends and family or whatever. You know, the New Age mystic even has some kind of belief about what's going to happen after death. Whether that's reincarnation or heaven. Anything but a biblical understanding of what happens after death. And the biblical understanding of what happens after death includes resurrection. Not only of the saints who will be resurrected into life in the new heaven and the new earth but also the resurrection of all of humanity. All who have refused to repent and believe in Jesus. They will be resurrected not unto life, but unto judgment, unto condemnation. In the fifth chapter of John's Gospel, after Jesus had healed the crippled man on the Sabbath, and you know, the religious leaders were really upset about that, you remember Jesus stood before the council of religious leaders and He said this, He said, "...for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes." He goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son to have life in Himself. Right there, He's talking about the salvation of the elect. He's talking about His people will hear His voice. He's talking about the same principle that's illustrated in the resurrection of Lazarus. He was talking about his authority to impart life to, as he says, whom he wishes. But he continues, verses 27 to 29 in chapter 5. He says, "...and he gave him, the Father gave him, gave Christ, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man." Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who were in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. The resurrection of Lazarus points to the resurrection of Christ. And the resurrection of Christ points to the resurrection of the saints and of everyone one day. It reminds us that the saints won't be the only ones resurrected in the future. Those who believe will be resurrected unto life. Those who haven't believed will be resurrected also, but unto judgment. Now the problem, if if you, if you parse out what Jesus said there, the problem is pretty clear, isn't it? Jesus said that those who did good deeds will be raised in a resurrection of life, and those who committed evil deeds will be raised in a resurrection of judgment. The problem is that every single one of us has done evil deeds. We've done things that we think are good, right? But that's not the question. The question is not, have we done what we think is good? The question is, have we done good in God's sight? And the answer is, no, we haven't. We've done our best to live up to our own standards, but every single one of us has had moments in which we have ignored the voice of our own conscience. So we've failed to live up to even our own moral standards of goodness. We've done our best to live up to social standards. But we've all, in one way or another, fallen short of that too. Way short. I mean, there are books out there that clearly show that the average person commits three crimes a day that could get them thrown in jail. And if we haven't lived up to our standards, our own personal moral standards of what's good and what's bad, and if we haven't lived up to society's standards of what's good and bad, you can be sure that we have not lived up to God's standards of what's good and what's evil. Because our standards and society's standards are far, far, far short of God's standards. God's standards. What we need is for someone to live up to God's standards for us. Because you and I and everyone else, we have already failed. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus lived up to God's standards of goodness and holiness and righteousness. And he did so without blemish. He did so perfectly. And the only way, therefore, to escape this resurrection unto judgment is to have Jesus' perfect righteousness credited to us. Given to us. Because we don't have any righteousness of our own. But one man did. And we have to have His righteousness. We need someone who has never fallen short of God's standards to take God's wrath against the sins that we have committed. That's what the cross was all about. That's why Jesus had to die. That was the cost of our redemption. And the way to receive this deliverance from condemnation, and the way to receive deliverance from this resurrection unto judgment is to receive Christ's perfect righteousness through faith. By believing in Jesus. That's the promise that the Gospel offers. Paul said, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. It's Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. He goes on to say this in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now let's remember, this is more than just saying, okay, I believe in Jesus, because the mouth reveals what's in the heart out of the mouth comes the abundance of the heart that's what paul's touching on there if your heart is filled with faith you're going to call on the name of the lord but this is what we need this is what we we need righteousness not our idea of righteousness not society's idea of righteousness we need christ's perfect righteousness and that is received by grace alone through faith alone in jesus christ alone that's how you escape this future resurrection unto judgment you must be credited with christ's good deeds the resurrection of lazarus reminds us that death is a defeated enemy Death is a conquered enemy. The resurrection of Lazarus reminds us of and points us to the resurrection of Jesus. And the resurrection of Jesus points us to the reality that death is not final for anyone. Death is a conquered enemy, but it is an enemy nonetheless. We've seen over the course of the past year how afraid people are of death but it's a reality that every one of us at some point eventually we're going to have to face. The mortality rate is every out of every 100 people, 100 are going to die. Historically speaking. If the Lord should delay coming back, that trend is going to continue. You know, We try to evade the reality of, of death. We try to avoid the reality of death. But it is a certainty for every single one of us. In 100 years... Every single one of us is going to be dead. And most of us are going to be forgotten. Every single one of us. And there's something about the reality of that fact. Something about the reality of death. That no matter the age of the person who passes, death feels cruel. And death feels unjust. You can go to the funeral of somebody who's 90 years old and say, this just seems so unjust. It seems so cruel. It seems so un- unright, not right. Same thing at the funeral of a, of a two or three-year-old. It feels so cruel. See, there's this desire that every person has. There's a desire within the human heart for there to be more, for there to be something that could extend life. The reality of death gives us this innate desire for resurrection. That is, when we're confronted with the reality of death, the cruel injustice of death, we feel a natural disaster for something that can only be accomplished by the supernatural. And the resurrection of Lazarus shows us that Jesus is the answer to that. He alone can fulfill that natural desire for resurrection. And He has assured us that He will. R.C. Sproul once said, quote, There is a divine curse upon unrighteousness. It will be born. Either Jesus bore the curse for you, or you will bear it for yourself. My advice? Flee to Him who bore the curse for His people. End quote. Maybe you've never believed in Jesus. Maybe you've thought about Him, but you've never believed in Him. Maybe you've never thought about what would happen after death. People do, after all, do everything they possibly can to avoid even thinking about death. But what I would urge you to do today if you have never believed in Jesus is to consider the certainty and the reality of death and the promise of future resurrection. Will you be resurrected? Will you be one of the ones resurrected unto life? And the answer is only. Only if you stand in the righteousness of Christ. Only if His good deeds are credited to you by grace. By the grace of God. You must prepare for that day by abandoning and by forsaking whatever you're hoping or or trusting in for mercy on that day, and you must cast yourself entirely upon the mercy of God by believing in Christ Jesus. I urge you to receive His righteousness by abandoning your own sense of righteousness and trusting in Jesus alone. And if you've done that, I pray that all of you have. If you've done that, if you, and you're a Christian, then there are a couple thoughts from this passage that we're studying for you to consider as we consider the resurrection of Lazarus. First of all, remember that Lazarus is a picture of everyone who has heard Christ's voice and followed Him. It's a picture of every single Christian's conversion. He's an illustration of the sinner who has been effectively called by Jesus and they have heard his voice and they have followed him. Consider that he was instructed to have his grave clothes removed. As people who have been resurrected to life in a spiritual sense in Christ, we too no longer are to be bound by grave clothes, so to speak. Richard Phillips notes this in his commentary. He says, quote, If he, that is Lazarus, if he is to experience the new life to which he is called, the old life must be left behind and the clothes of death exchanged for garments of holiness. End quote. Spiritually speaking, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, we too have been raised from death to life. And Paul says this uh, in his letter to the Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. He says, Therefore, in other words, in light of these truths, and he's been talking about uh, what Christ has done for us to redeem us, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Those are instructions that are only given to the believer. Only given to those who have been raised to spiritual life in Christ Jesus. He says, keep seeking. Keep, continue. Don't, don't just look at this as a one-time event. You, you got forgiven. Now you can just go and do whatever you want. No, keep doing this. Keep seeking things above. Because salvation is more than just being forgiven it starts with being forgiven that's where the journey starts but it does not end there it is a lifelong journey in which God sanctifies us in which God grows us in Christ's likeness and we do these things because our lives are not our own our lives are hidden in Christ Jesus you've died to your old self and your life is now in Jesus but Paul continues, starting in verse five, he said, verses five to 10. he writes, "Therefore, in light of that truth, you should do this. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also. Put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside... This is making an assumption here. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the One who created Him. You've been renewed. You have new life, not because of your own doing, but because Christ Christ effectually called you to salvation. You heard his voice, and you followed him. The resurrection of Lazarus reminds us not only of our future physical resurrection, but it reminds us of our spiritual resurrection. We have died. All who are in Christ have died and have been raised to life with Christ. It's a life in which we are to grow spiritually, just like physically when somebody's born. They're to grow, right? We expect them to grow. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we grow spiritually as God has ordained? God's given us the means to do that. We call them means of grace. You've probably heard Pastor Jordan say that in, uh, you know, when we take communion. You've probably heard Pastor Jordan say that uh, for our opening prayer. Uh, he uses that term. I use that term. But if you aren't sure what the means of grace are, we're not talking about being forgiven like the means of being forgiven. No, we're talking about sanctifying grace. These are the things that keep us doing this, keep us growing. They include things like prayer, studying the Word, having fellowship with other believers in the context of the local church, baptism, the Lord's Supper. These are all means of grace that help us to understand why going to church in person matters Very much. And that there is no such thing as online church. There is no such thing. That that, that is not a means of grace. Lazarus experienced resurrection by hearing Christ's voice. We hear that same voice whenever we subject ourselves to the ministry of the Word. But we must be intentional about it. We have the responsibility to come to church and to partake of these means of grace. God has ordained that these things would be necessary, not not optional, but that these things are necessary for the journey that takes place in the Christian life between the moment you are forgiven and the moment you enter into glory one day. One of the tasks that we're given upon initially receiving God's justifying grace is to kill, to, to, to mortify the desires and the works of the flesh. And that is something that only a Christian can do. That is something that only somebody who has the Spirit of God residing within them can do. It's something that we cannot do by our own power. Paul wants us to understand that it's both possible and that it's necessary exactly because we have experienced spiritually what Lazarus experienced physically. We've been raised to life in Christ and will one day be raised to appear with Him in glory. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the grave now dwells in us, empowering us to put to death the sinful inclinations of the flesh. We are not to live as we used to live. We are to shed the grave clothes because we're not the same people we used to be. We don't live in the tomb anymore. We, we can do this and we must do this because we have been raised to life with Christ. We're not to look like the world. We're not to think like the world. We're not to speak like the world. We're not to act like the world because God has separated us from the world. God has given us a new nature that is unlike the nature that the world has. And He's given us His Spirit to guide us and to empower us into lives that are increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. And what that means is we are increasingly being made practically righteous. In other words, we're learning to forsake sin and practice righteousness. That's the first thing to consider in light of Lazarus' resurrection. The second thing that I'd like you to consider, consider as we finish talking about the resurrection of Lazarus is the way that Jesus invites his followers to participate in this passage. He particip- they participate in his work. He instructs them, first of all, to roll away the stone. And, and then after Lazarus is resurrected, after he, he comes forth, Jesus instructs the people, his, his followers, to unbind Lazarus from his grave clothes. Now, let me ask you this. Could Jesus have rolled away the stone from the grave sure of course he ha- he could have uh, but that wouldn't have been nearly as incredible as him re- uh, resurrecting Lazarus I mean if you think about it how many millions of men have figured out a way to roll a stone away from a tomb but how many people have resurrected somebody else from the grave Couldn't Jesus have removed the the grave clothes from Lazarus himself? Of course he could have. He he could have turned the the grave clothes into butter if he wanted to. But why didn't he? The answer is that Jesus loves to invite his people into his work. He could, of course, accomplish His work without us. He does not need me. He does not need you. He does not need anybody. He is entirely self-sufficient in Himself. We aren't necessary to the success of His mission. And yet, He invites us into it. He has ordained that men and women would be saved by God's grace, but that they would receive that grace upon hearing the Gospel preached by God's people and thereby believing. How do His sheep hear His voice and follow Him? They hear it when the Word is preached. They hear it when the Gospel is shared. The power to convert sinners is not in us. No, the saving power of Christ is is found in His Word. His sheep must hear His voice, and His voice is heard when the Gospel is preached to His people. He, he could have ordained that angels would be the ones to, to come down and, and preach to people. He could have ordained that that would be how we enter into salvation, how, how we hear His voice. But no, in His wisdom, He has ordained that redeemed sinners would preach to fallen sinners. He invites us, indeed, he instructs us to participate in his ongoing work. The voice that raised Lazarus from the dead still speaks in his word, and it still effectually calls out to sinners, bringing them from death to life. The question is are you obeying Christ in this? Are you actively participating in his ongoing work? Are you sharing the Gospel with people who are lost? Because they will one day be resurrected. Jesus has proved that. He's proved that by resurrecting Lazarus and by Himself being resurrected. It's proven beyond doubt by Christ's own resurrection. Jesus is the Savior that our lost family members and friends and co-workers need. He's the Savior whose voice they must hear if they're going to believe. Because Jesus is risen and forever reigns and because He has ascended into heaven where He now sits at the right hand of the Father and because He has promised that He will return again to judge the living and the dead, He alone is worthy of our faithful participation in His work and in His mission. And He takes joy in instructing and equipping and empowering us to participate in and thereby witness His work of raising the dead to life. One final principle in this passage that is undeniably found in this uh, passage in John, both in Lazarus' resurrection and in the resurrection of Jesus, is that it's never too late for Jesus. It's never too late. Maybe you have preached to somebody and nothing happened. Maybe you faithfully preached and faithfully preached only for those seeds to fall on hard, stony soil. Here's what I'd urge you today. Keep planting seeds. If you're a farmer and all you've planted are seeds that fell on stony soil, you don't just stop. You keep planting until those seeds take root and grow and produce a harvest. So don't give up on people who have rejected your pleas and your urgings to believe in Jesus. Don't give up on them. If they've still got a heartbeat, there's still hope. Jesus, it's never too late for Jesus. Keep sharing the gospel. Keep praying for their salvation. It is never, it is never, it is never too late for Jesus. And it's not impossible for Jesus. Jesus holds the keys of life and death. The resurrection proves it. He is risen. He's risen. And the resurrection changes everything. Let's pray. Our most gracious God and Father, we thank You for Your Word and this passage and the way that it demonstrates Your power over life and death. The way that it illustrates salvation. The way that it points to Christ's resurrection. The way that it reminds us that death is not final. That death is a conquered enemy. We thank You for it. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would teach us to live in light of the truths that your word reveals. That resurrection power, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, now lives and works in us to conform us to his image. Teach us to live in light of that truth. We pray that you would empower us to forsake the deeds of the flesh, to turn away from sin, to mortify the flesh. Oh God, we could not do these things on our own power. We would not have the conviction to do it on our own power. But by Your Holy Spirit living in us, O oh Lord, please, we ask, conform us more and more to the image of Christ. Teach us to put our sin and our flesh to death for the glory of Christ. That our lives would be testimony monuments of your saving, resurrection, power, and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.